Hello and welcome to another edition of From the Newsroom, the podcast with the Holland Sentinel. I'm reporter Arpan Lobo. Today I'm joined by our executive editor, Sarah Leach, and our managing editor, Audrey Gamble. And guys, we are back to talk about last night's vice presidential debate between Vice President Mike Pence and California Senator Kamala Harris, who is, of course, Joe Biden's running mate. And uh, I guess just to start, you know, so we'll jump right in here. Different debate than last week's presidential one, right? Totally different tone, kind of different, you know, feel around it. But there were still some moments where we were thinking, hmm, is this quite, you know, is this debate kind of on track? I guess, and I'll I'll bring you in, um, Sarah, first. You know, one of the things we were talking about in our planning was our the moderation. And last week we saw kind of Chris Wallace had to, you know, try and rein in two crazy or one crazy horse, you know. Uh, Susan Page, our colleague Susan Page of USA Today, uh, didn't quite have to do the same thing today, but she did kind of uh, have to contend with a different form of debate malpractice, I guess, so to speak. So, uh, Sarah, kind of kind of loop us in, loop us in on kind of what uh, took place last night with that. Well, so Susan Page is is more, um, she has a background in newspapering, which is a different tone, uh, it's a different experience, it's a, it's a whole different organism than uh, television broadcast, which is where, you know, Chris Wallace, um, where the, the background that he has. And so I think that Chris was a little bit more um, better prepared to be able to jump in when needed, where he recognized behavior that was a flouting of the debate rules that both parties previously agree to where they have, they get asked a question, they have two minutes to answer without interrupting, um, you know, the, the person who's speaking. And so we, we saw that pretty much go off the rails in the first presidential debate, but then in the vice presidential debate, yes, the, the, the rules were followed better. Um, but it, it was pretty clear within the first uh, couple of questions that, Specifically, Vice President Pence was talking over the time limit, and then Susan would come in and say thank you, you know, to indicate that his time was up. Not to say that this didn't happen with uh, Senator Harris. However, uh, Pence really did it egregiously. And so I think that Susan struggled a little bit in that moment to try to figure out how to keep them on track because as new questions were asked, Um, Pence often would want to go back to um, previous questions, and so she struggled to keep them on point. And I think that there was a a real missed opportunity here for for the moderator to be a little bit more firm in enforcing the rules, um, because there was a point much later, deep into the debate, where she she did interrupt uh, Pence and say, look, this is, these are the rules that we all agree to. You need to follow them. And then it, it seems that he listened to her, at least for, for a period of time. And so I think that she, if she, had she done that a little bit earlier in the debate, I think that things might've been a little more smooth. Audra, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, it definitely was at least you could call it a debate this time around, which mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know that you could have used that word with the first presidential debate. So that was, I mean, it felt like progress perhaps, but I don't necessarily know that this still served voters the best it possibly could have. I mean, you know, it's a big ask of people to 
sit down for 90 minutes on a weeknight. They've got, you know, kids running around, they're trying to clean stuff. It's, that's a long time to ask people to pay attention. So if you're going to, to make that ask of the American public, I think that you need to have a format and a, a moderator that can really serve those voters, particularly, you know, undecided voters that are right now sitting there with their absentee ballots sitting on their kitchen table waiting to be filled out. I think that there are some limitations in terms of, you know, the tools provided to a moderator. Like we said in the first debate, there's not a whole lot Chris Wallace could have done differently unless he had the ability to, to kill candidates' mics. But in, in this debate, it was really frustrating that Susan Page's only real response was saying thank you over and over again. It felt very... That, that kind of stifling tension of, of West Michigan nice, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, you could feel the frustration every time she said the words, thank you, like she wanted to say something else. Um, but, you know, even in, in return, there were quite a few moments where you could feel both candidates also wanting to say something different or go on longer or clearly frustrated that they weren't allowed to address something that had previously been discussed. And at least twice, Mike Pence just straight up said at the top of his question, thank you, but I'm going to go back to something else. And then completely disregarded whatever the new topic or question was from Susan Page. And it's just so frustrating to see that happen over and over. You know, once or twice, I can understand, you know, you wanted to address some sort of personal attack or whatever. But it felt like Mike Pence did it for I'd say more than half of the debate where he just kind of decided he was going to talk about whatever he wanted to rather than furthering the discussion for the American public. And in those circumstances, I think it's so important that the moderator understands their role as being an advocate for the average American voter and not, you know, a a recess minder at an elementary school. There needs to be a, a more forceful use of follow-ups and and live fact-checking in order for this to be an effective use of the American public's time. Yeah, I I really do think that, you know, regardless of the the, um, more spectacle, higher spectacle value, lower content value of the first presidential debate, I do think that Chris Wallace was more effective in um, interrupting those moments so that the candidates uh, could not capitalize on the fact that they were flouting the rules and that they were talking past their time limits and that they were asking for rebuttal time when the format didn't allow for it. And and Chris did challenge some things that some statements that the candidates made. He asked some follow-up questions. Now, was it uh, as effective as we would have wanted it to so that the voters had some useful information? No. But I do think that we should have seen more of that in, in last night's debate, I, it felt very um, keep on the script, keep to the timetable. Um, I really wish at some point, uh, you know, Susan would have dropped the notes and just kind of got in there and started just kind of winging it a little bit. Yeah, I, I think especially that's true in the second question of the debate, which I thought was a great question where Susan Page asked both candidates, have you and, you know, the person that you're running with the top of your ticket had a discussion about, frankly, their, their mortality. Right, which, by the way, neither of them actually answered. But. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it was so frustrating because that's a great question. I mean, right. Donald Trump is the oldest president in, in office in the history of the United States. Were Joe Biden to be elected, he would take that crown. He's three years older. 
you know, Donald Trump just got out of the hospital. He still has coronavirus. This is a really serious question. Why are you, you know, the person that Americans should trust should that horrible thing happen and the person that's on the top of your ticket, you know, pass away, become incapacitated, whatever. Why are you someone the American people should trust to to take over that Oval Office? I think that's a great question and one that's so much more relevant in this presidential campaign than perhaps in previous ones. And Mike Pence really didn't say anything other than thanking the American people for getting through the coronavirus. And sending thoughts and prayers to the president. Right. And... And then Kamala Harris took that time to kind of introduce herself to the public. And she talked a little bit about, you know, that she thinks that her public service record is in line with Joe Biden's ideals. So that was a little bit more of an answer, I guess. But it just was so frustrating to have such a good question, you know, right out the gate pretty much and just get such a lack of real answer to that. Let's get Oh, I'm sorry, Arpen. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, you know, let's let's get into the meat of the of the uh, questions that were asked. You know that that question on you know replacing uh, or becoming president was certainly one of the more poignant you know questions asked last night. And also, you know, some of these questions, of course, address the coronavirus pandemic and abortion rights, the environment, things like that. But you know, these questions weren't always kind of answered directly. In fact, there was one uh, question. It was coming off, it was tangential to the Supreme Court vacancy that um, Amy, uh, President Trump has nominated Amy Coney Barrett to fill. And Susan Page asked uh, Vice President Pence, you know, who's the former Indiana governor that was his job before VP, um, is Amy Coney Barrett uh, has, is as much as... Pre- Pence tried to, you know, oh, we don't know how she's going to rule. Her nomination was partly, in fact, due to the fact that she's, a, you know, in favor of repealing Roe versus Wade. And Susan Page asked Vice President Pence, um, if you were still in Indiana, would you support banning all abortions? Because if Roe v. Wade were repealed, it would come down to the states. And he just kind of didn't answer the question. And as Audrey was mentioning earlier... It felt like that was kind of a theme of the night, you know. Uh, he kind of pivoted this question into an attack on Kamala Harris and the Biden campaign over packing the court. He kept on, you know, asking Kamala, can you answer this question? Can you answer this question? So with the kind of major issues that were, you know, discussed last night, it felt like we weren't getting a lot of substance, particularly from Mike Pence's side. There were times where I thought Kamala Harris could have done a better job answering questions too, uh, particularly on the issue of the Green New Deal framework. Because if you look at the Biden campaign website, it does basically, you know, say the Green New Deal. It might not be a name, but the frameworks are essentially the same. So, uh, Audra, what were kind of your thoughts on just the, the, the policy topics that were attempted to be covered last night? Yeah, I mean, I think it's great that we got into some policy. I think that's, you know, again, some progress from the first presidential debate where we really didn't have very much substance at all. But I I agree with you that both candidates could have done a better job at at sort of landing those lines. Um, 
there were a few moments where Kamala Harris talked about some really specific parts of the Biden plan. She talked about, you know, there being free public college education for families that made less than $125,000 a year. That was a, you know, specific thing. She talked about wanting to get back into the the Iran nuclear deal that that Trump has backed out of. She talked about re-entering the Paris Climate Accord. She also had a really strong moment, I thought, um, in in talking about um, racial racial justice and uh, police brutality, where she said that one of the the big points of the Biden plan is to ban chokeholds and also eliminate cash bail, which is a, a big deal in terms of uh, you know criminal justice reform. And that's really where her strong suit is as you know a former um, prosecutor. I do think that she could have done a better job in, in some aspects, especially, yeah, like we talked about with, with that climate, um, plan answer, but on the other hand, you know, a lot of the time was spent kind of regulating her answer in, in comparison to vice president Pence's answers that were strangely inflammatory, but said in a very calm tone, if that makes any sense. You know, his answer on, on climate change was to, again, kind of repeat that that Donald Trump line about how um, forest management would make wildfires in, in California better. But then he used the phrase uh, climate alarmists. And it just was like there were two totally different conversations happening where Kamala Harris was trying really hard to, to point out particulars and to talk about, you know, very specific things. And Vice President Pence had like four or five prepped lines ready to go that he thought sounded really good and kept trying to pivot the conversation until he could use them again and and hope they landed a little better than the last time. And it just was so frustrating that it felt very, you know, circular. Yeah. You know, I, I agree with that. It's just it was just so jarring to me, just kind of the thank you, Susan, but I want to go back. It it wouldn't have been jarring if it only happened once or maybe twice. But it felt like every topic it was always I want to go back, you know, whether it was um if Pence was trying to deflect, you know, an accusation for, from from Harris or if he was trying to, you know, go on the offensive. It was just something to me where it felt like he was dodging the questions, and for the most part, he was able to get away with it. Um, you mentioned, you know, the you used the phrase landed. And um, one thing that did land uh, last night was a fly, a rather large fly. <laughs> and we have to talk about this because it... I know, like I, I'm giggling like a schoolgirl because it just was so ridiculous. And to be honest, <laughs> this is what most people will remember about this vice presidential debate. But it was not just like, you know, your average house fly. This was like a huge fly and it landed right on Mike Pence's head and Mike Pence has you know that bright silver white hair and so this fly stood out you know in contrast it probably got stuck in you know the hair product there too for a little bit I mean Uh, it was there for a long time our pants two minutes and three seconds someone timed it (laughs) how long was that time again two minutes and three seconds oh yeah that's I mean yeah and you know it's funny because I saw, you know, and Sarah, you sent this over in our in our word chat. You know, look at all these new Twitter accounts people are making of the of you know. There's oh, I'm the fly that landed on Mike Pence's head, and then so after I saw that, the the most common joke I saw was, 
I guarantee you actual people are running to their computers right now to make a Twitter account saying they're the fly that landed on Mike Pence's head. I think that there were over a hundred Twitter accounts made with some sort of variation of, you know, Pence fly, Mike Pence's fly on his head, you know, something like that, fly on the, on the, on the head instead of the wall, all that kind of stuff, which I mean, to a certain extent, I'm a little frustrated that there wasn't, you know, that sort of commotion around some sort of policy issue, but also we all just need that laugh right now, I think. (laughs) Yeah, the moment of levity was so appreciated, I think, just given how tense everything has been. And, you know, this this debate, while more civil, it was very sharp in in terms of, you know, what was being said and, and and the rhetoric that was exchanged. And so I think that that moment, everyone glommed onto that moment to just have a really good laugh. I mean, we all kind of needed that two minutes and three seconds. I mean, the memes were great. The jokes were great. The Biden campaign worked so fast, and they put out a flywillvote.com URL within, like, <laughs> 10 minutes. Like, it was just so wonderful all around. <laughs> yeah, there, there was also the, the Biden campaign site was selling a fly swatter with the slogan, Truth Over Flies. So... Uh. Definitely capitalizing on the viral moment. I will just say, though, if you're one of the 13,000 people that's following that Fly account, why? What relevance does it have after tonight? I mean, may, maybe, it, it, you know, people like to just grift, but and reevaluate, you know, your, <laughs> who you're putting on your TL. Um, well, no, Sarah, you mentioned, you know, the kind of moment of levity in a debate that, while it wasn't wild, like the presidential debate, it still was sharp. This morning, and we're recording this on Thursday morning right after uh, last night's debate, we did get some news. Uh, First, it was announced that next week's presidential debate that was originally supposed to be in Miami, Florida, would be going virtual uh, because President Trump, to our knowledge, they have not announced anything anything like this from the White House, is still uh, COVID-19 positive. And, you know, his age group puts him at risk. Obviously, Joe Biden's age group puts him at risk. So to avoid that risk... They decided to move the uh, campaign to a virtual event, and um, Trump said, no, I'm not going to do this. He instead uh, says he's not going to participate in the debate and instead will hold a rally or an event that was kind of unclear. Um, We've seen during the pandemic, even in Michigan, uh, Trump has held, you know, these campaign uh, rallies with thousands of people, even in indoor spaces, Um, pandemic be damned. Um, So... Kind of moving forward, if we're not going to have this scheduled debate, um, you know, we, we were talking about this beforehand. You raised the question, you know, is this inherently a bad thing? You know, what kind of purpose do debates serve anymore? So I kind of want to uh, give you some time to kind of expand on that point, you know, of why you think that, you know, the debates might not be as relevant as they once were. Well, I think that, you know, we've never we've never seen a candidate and or a sitting elected official be bold enough to basically say, I, you know, yeah, these are your rules and sure, I'll agree to them, but I'm basically going to do what, what I want to do. Um, you know, there's always sort of been this, uh, this gentleman's or gentlewoman's agreement and acknowledgement that, you know, we all have to engage in this process because it's always been this way. Um, and I think that with Trump's behavior and, and to a lesser extent, uh, Vice President Pence, um, it really kind of calls into question whether or not 
this is a useful tool for voters to be able to learn any new information. We are seeing a, 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 an election cycle where there really isn't any substantial discussion about policy. Um, it's hinted at a little bit in the vice presidential debate, but it's not, it, it, I mean, I, I have seen debates in previous election cycles where there have been PowerPoint presentations and, you know, these bullet point plans and these uh, witty um, acronyms that surround whatever kind of rollout or repeal that they want to do. Um, we have not seen any of that. I mean, not even an echo of that in this cycle. And now we've got, because of coronavirus, we have a, a president pulling out of a debate, which is just unprecedented, um, moderators who can't control the discussion. So I guess I'm just kind of sitting here wondering, is this a moment where we're going to see this part of the uh, election cycle evolve, much like we did when JFK was running against Nixon. Um, we saw the first televised debate, and it, and it turned debates on, on their on their ear, really, about how those affect people and how it sways votes. We went from a traditional radio debate style previously with the advent of TV. We see the first televised debate, and Nixon, who actually was the stronger candidate, if you just want to go from a pure policy standpoint, um, actually performed very poorly because of his mannerisms. Uh, you know, he was he was visually just dis distressed. He was sweating, and that has an, an effect on voters. And so they they had a visceral reaction to that. And I'm wondering if we're going to see some sort of an evolution now, um, where we have we previously saw them adapt to the television cycle. They've manipulated it to the best of their advantage for the you know the past 40 years, and now. What's next? Um, I think that we're going to see something different in four years from now. And frankly, I think it kind of needs to happen because I'm tired of candidates not asking questions. And I just want to get in one point. Susan Page asked great questions. I, I probably should have said that earlier, but I thought that her questions were just things that I've always wondered. And they were on point. We didn't always get answers, but I thought that she did a good job coming up with the questions. Yeah, I, I wanted to read that statement from, from the Trump campaign about that October 15th debate just to clarify that, that, I guess, concern about that idea of a rally instead because, I, I, I mean, I don't know if they mean that to be a true in-person rally with the president up on the stage, but if so, that is, I mean, that is like danger zone 101 because he will still at that time have been within, you know, the 14-day the concern time for the coronavirus. So th this is a statement from the, the Trump 2020 campaign manager. They said, President Trump won the first debate despite a terrible and biased moderator in, Qu in Chris Wallace, and everybody knows it. For the swamp creatures at pr the Presidential Debate Commission to now rush to Joe Biden's defense by unilaterally canceling an in-person debate is pathetic. That's not what debates are about or how they're done. Here are the facts. President Trump will have posted multiple negative tests prior to the debate, so there is no need for this unilateral declaration. The safety of all involved can easily be achieved without canceling a chance for voters to see both candidates go head to head. We'll pass on this sad excuse to bail out Joe Biden and do a rally instead. So they use the word rally in that statement, and it's just... You know, I guess we'll see what that means in the in the coming days as more details come out and, and all of that kind of stuff. But it's just kind of wild to see 
you know, Vice President Pence stand up there on that, well, I guess sit at the desk on the stage last night and talk about how, you know, everybody who has lost a, a relative to COVID-19 is, you know, in his his heart and, and thoughts and prayers, and then to turn around and have that sort of statement released by by the campaign. Yeah, and I think that one of the, one of the things that um, strikes me is that, you know, this also is politically convenient for Trump, and I'm I'm not I'm not really being partisan when I say that you know he let's keep in mind that the sitting president of the United States has coronavirus, and he shortly after testing positive spent three days in the hospital, but this virus um, has a, a, a multi-week um, life cycle, and so I. I, I think that they're capitalizing on the moment to be able to kind of spin this a little bit to, to, to kind of project this back onto the Biden campaign and say, well, you know, this is the, this is the committee and it's favoring the Democrats and um, we're just going to hold a rally instead. It, it also is convenient that it gets him out of having to um, go through a 90 minute debate where he's got to stand and, and have to talk at length when he is battling um, an illness. It, it is, you know, kind of something that we, we haven't seen before. And, um, but that, we feel like we've been saying that for the past four or five years, you know, ever since, you know, <laughs> the, ever since he came down the escalator. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, anyway, I, I guess, you know, we'll start wrapping up here. Uh, now that our next debate is unclear, I don't know if we'll podcast next week. Uh, but, you know, just, just focusing on last night, Audra, I'll pull you in first. Any final thoughts, any final takeaways that um, you had of, of last night's debate? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think that overall the debate was an improvement from the shouting match that occurred last week. So I guess progress in the right direction. But I, I just firmly think that, you know, in an election year in which so much has happened, there is so much uncertainty. There's There are so many Americans who are just trying to figure out, you know, how to make ends meet and are looking for some sort of stability <laughs> in, in any format that they can get that not answering questions directly and, you know, humming and hawing around whatever it is that has been asked of you. So you can say whatever you want instead is just not serving voters. And I, I hope that in the future, the, the candidates on, on both tickets recognize that there is a duty to the American voter to, answer questions when directly posed to them and to be held accountable for the positions that they're, they're trying to either remain in or be elected to. Right. I think it's a great uh, thing to remember that that's the purpose these debates uh, serve. Sarah, your final thoughts. Well, I, I just think that, that debates are, you know, the whole point of having them um, is to really expose a, the candidates to a populace that that doesn't necessarily track news and politics. It's supposed to allow independent voters or um, you know apathetic voters to exposure to the candidates so that they can form their opinions rather quickly. Um, because we really don't have that in this election cycle, this was basically just performance theater, um, just like last week's debate was. And I, I really question. The value of doing this, I, I you know, as a voter, um, and and in our job where we try to get the best information to people so that they can form opinions and positions based on events that are going on around them. I just think that this was really a disservice to the American people, and frankly, it was just kind of insulting. 
All right. And on that note, we will wrap up here. So once again, guys, thanks for listening. I'm Arpan Lobo for our managing editor, Audrey Gamble. Our executive editor, Sarah Leach, this has been another episode of From the Newsroom. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.